Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Cubs Vine for October 23rd, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, exciting show tonight. We're going to go all over the country. We have three of our very best guests um, covering uh, different states, uh, multiple-time multiple guests. Uh, in about 20 minutes, we're going to have Dr. Michael Bitzer telling us about North Carolina and that in Senate race that I think is really under the radar unfairly. And then about uh, 7.40 from Wisconsin, Dr. Anthony Trugoski is going to tell us about the Senate governor's race. Both of those people will tell us about some House races. But right off the bat, we have one of our favorite guests from all times, but then also this year because his state has been one of the most fascinating to watch, and that would be Mike Mitkus of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, Mike, um, I'm going to start this one off. This will be the only one of the three interviews I start off, but I'm going to do this one because I want to talk about the Senate race. We've talked to you about it before. I think we've got to talk right before the primary and then sometime after. And once the candidates were decided, it was pretty much where, honestly, on social media, uh, John Fetterman clowned Dr. Oz for weeks straight. And that helped John Fetterman have a lead that was in the neighborhood of 10 points, if not high single digits, so around 10 points at times. In recent weeks, it has definitely tightened. Tell us what you're seeing, and then tell us why that happened. Sure. Well, the race did uh, narrow quite a bit over the past probably eight weeks or so. Um, The primary reason that the race uh, closed was that the Republican Party and uh, a number of Republican-leaning outside groups came in, and they were just hammering um, John Fetterman uh, on crime, on other issues, um, while the Democratic outside groups, you know, they, they, they didn't come onto the playing field until a few weeks ago. So he, he was up the, on the air all by himself, getting it vastly outspent. And what happened was a number of Republicans who either were saying they were undecided or leaning towards Fetterman moved back to Oz. This is Pennsylvania. You know, we knew from the very beginning this was going to be a close race. It's very rare that there's a blowout statewide. Um, So the race has tightened. But I think the good news for John Fetterman is he – was able to get through the storm and still hold a lead. Most polls that I'm seeing, he has a lead of three to four points. Uh, It's been pretty stable. There have been a couple outlier polls that showed it a little closer. But by and large, uh, Fetterman is leading. 
and, and part of that reason is he spent a considerable amount of time in this race before all through the primary and into the general going to our smaller, more rural counties. He's not going to win those counties, but he's, he's doing uh, what a lot of candidates who lose Pennsylvania fail to do is to go to these counties, not to win them, but to narrow the margins. So instead of losing 60, 40, maybe he loses 57, 43. And if you do that in 40 or 50 counties, those numbers add up. And I, I, I really, at this point, you know, while I might not be completely shocked if, if Oz won the race, I, I really b- believe that John Fetterman's on path to win the race in a few weeks. Yes. Now, we know that um, John Fetterman suffered a stroke right before the primary, and the recovery took a little longer than I think anticipated. In your opinion, because he apparently is a very good retail campaigner, how many points do you think that health setback actually cost him? I'll be honest with you. I don't think it cost him all that much. Um, and primarily because their strategy over the summer when he was recuper- recuperating, you know, it was brilliant. A lot of times, you know, I always tell candidates that I'm advising that Twitter's not real. Well, in John Fetterman's case, they had such a brilliant social media strategy that it jumped over into the mainstream press where the mainstream press was covering his uh, social media efforts. And it really did some damage to Oz. And and to give you a a proof point, uh, there was a recent poll here, public poll that showed that Oz is favorables. Well, he's at 36 favorable, 54 unfavorable, where John Fetterman was at 48 favorable, 44 favorable. So believe it or not, even though he wasn't on the campaign trail this past summer, I I do not think his taking the time to recuperate um, hurt his campaign at all. Yes. Final question. A few weeks ago, two big stories came out within about uh, 24 hours of each other that Herschel Walker paid for abortion um, of a ex-girlfriend and Dr. Oz test or um, euthanized puppies in, t- in medical testing um, in Georgia. Obviously the Herschel Walker story got a lot more play, but I do, I follow a lot of national figures around the country and it still seemed like her, the Herschel Walker story got more play in Pennsylvania. How much attention did that dog story with Dr. Oz's um, medical testing get? Well, it, it's astounding. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking, you know, probably two weeks ago is when that story broke. And everywhere I go, people bring it up to me. And I think it's going to hurt them. It, it, you know, the, I think that there are TV ads running highlighting Oz and his experiments on the dogs. It was over 300 dogs. And he even killed an entire litter of puppies. And, you know, I, I think a lot of partisan politics ends for a lot of people when it involves puppies. And quite frankly, I think it, it's damaging. And I just don't, you know, you're not going to see the race widen. But I think those undecided voters, I think that's going to move them into the uh, Fetterman camp by and large. Yes. Well, amazingly, your state has more great races than just this 
um, Senate race. So I'm going to pass it to Catherine, then Tim for some more Pennsylvania questions. Catherine? Hey, thanks for being with us tonight on this uh, experimental uh, show for us. (laughs) Um, I wanted to talk to you about the governor's race. There's been so much attention on the Fetterman-Oz race that I don't know that a lot of people have really been, I mean, I'm sure in Pennsylvania they have, but nationally I'm not sure people are paying that close attention to the governor's race in Pennsylvania, but it's really kind of interesting. And I wonder what your take is, is uh, our Shapiro and I haven't looked at the polls. I meant to do that before I came on. But how are, how is it stacking up? You know, now that we're getting so close to the to election day. Well, unlike the Senate race, poll after poll is showing uh, Josh Shapiro, who's our Attorney General, with a fairly sizable lead uh, over um, Doug Mastriano, who's a state senator. Um, you know, Doug Mastriano's running perhaps the worst campaign in America right now. He's raised virtually no money, um, has very little ground game. He's had a number of uh, events that he built as big, big rallies, and he would get 35, 40 people to show up. <laughs> so he doesn't have a grassroots campaign. He's not on the, air, on the air, and he is just so extreme and so far out, out, out of the mainstream. He's even talked about prosecuting women who got have abortions the abortion issue is a huge issue here in pennsylvania and you know you know and you couple that with josh shapiro as the attorney general both times he ran he led the ticket uh both in 2016 and 2020 and he's just an exceptionally strong candidate who's run an incredible campaign and i think he's going to win I think the polling will close a, a bit, but this will be one of the rare races where in Pennsylvania where a a winner is called pretty early on election night. You know, well, that'll be most, a relief the, the closest, for so many people. <laughs> yeah, the closest legitimate poll I've seen has been like eight points, which is in oh, Pennsylvania, no. that is just a massive lead given – the dynamics of our state. I mean, Joe Biden only anywhere won the that's state a by... massive lead these days. Yeah, yeah. Anywhere he, that's he won... a, you know that's a big lead anywhere. Well, um, yeah, thank there, there, you. There have been I, I think very few pass... races with those margins. Yeah, it's it's been a long time since we saw many races like that. Well, um, that's all good news for us Democrats, so I'm glad to hear it. And I'm going to pass it to Tim because I know he has a number of questions for you. Thanks so much. Sure. Thank you. Hey. Good, uh, good to be talking to you. Um, your your state is doing quite well in the sports world right now, so uh, I'm sure you're a happy. Well, unfortunately, cat. that's on the wrong side of the state. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't no. give up. The Penguins will probably be pretty good this year. So. Yeah, the Penguins will be good. The Steelers, not yeah. so much, and the Pittsburgh Pirates are the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Charlie Cook. Right now, rates three districts, Democratic districts in your state as toss-ups, the 7th, the 8th, and the 17th. That's a lot of districts in one state in one party to be toss-up. Why so many, and is that just the nature of things in Pennsylvania now? Well, for a long time in Pennsylvania, 
Republicans had a, even though it was more or less a 50-50 state, had a dominant, uh, had dominant control over the congressional map. And that was due to gerrymandering. And back uh-huh. in 2018, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court tossed out the maps at the time. And when the maps had to be redrawn this year, it actually uh, went to a commission uh, who drew the maps where, you know, for the, for the most part, um, you know, the, the, the control of either party over the House seats will likely be at best 10-7, um, mm-hmm. you know, and with three, three seats up for grabs. So, I mean, this is what we're going to be looking at for the next 10 years. And, you know, quite frankly, I think the Democrats – should probably be favored in two of the three, and the one is uh-huh. yeah, the third one is a true toss-up. Uh huh. Now that would be would that be the seventeenth, the open seat, or is that the seventh? There's a new yeah, poll. The seventeenth is the open seat. Uh-huh. Uh, it's in suburban suburban Pittsburgh, and uh-huh. uh, you know it's it, it's a district that Joe Biden won and. You know, quite frankly, this is, if, if there's a district out there where the abortion issue really plays well, it's this district. It's, you know, suburban Pittsburgh and goes a little bit into the exurbs, but about two-thirds of the district is in suburban Pittsburgh. And a lot of these communities in this district for, used to be pretty darn Republican. And what happened uh-huh. is Donald Trump came on the scene, and, and you've seen them flip. But it wasn't because a lot of these suburban voters were necessarily thrilled with the Democratic Party. They just really didn't like Trump or Trumpism. So what they, you know, I, I think at least for one more cycle, those, a lot of the, most of those voters are going to remain in the Democratic camp. And I think that's why Chris DeLuzio is going to win. All um, right. Matt, and Matt Cartwright up in northeastern Pennsylvania, you know, he, he, he has a tough race every year. And his district got even a little, a little redder. So uh, he's just been a candidate who, or a member of Congress, who's really worked hard in in the more rural parts of his district. And you know, I think he ends up holding on. Uh, it, you know, that's one of those seats. You know, I will not be convinced he can be beat until he's actually beat. I really don't think he'll he'll be beat. And then just south of that, basically, it's, you know, it's a little bit northeastern, a little bit just eastern, uh, just north of Philadelphia. Susan Wilde's up for re-election. That's going to be a dogfight. Her district got considerably more Republican. That said, it's a coin flip right now. So um, I think, you know, the, the cliche, it all comes down to turnout. Well, that's one race where I think it's going to come down to turnout. All right. I'm going to ask you one more quick question, uh, Mike, and I'm going to throw it back to David then. Uh, You have some interesting laws on voting. You have no-excuse mail-in balloting, uh, but your state has never really followed the in-person early voting route that so many others, including mine, uh, have followed, but Pennsylvania has like about a 20% larger population than Georgia, and early voting would seem to make sense. So any idea why Pennsylvania does not have in-person early voting? 
First off, it, uh, it would make a lot of sense to have early voting here in Pennsylvania, and there's one reason that we don't have it, and that is because of the Republicans in the legislature. They control both the House and Senate, even though, it, uh-huh. even though we have a Democratic governor. They will never allow it to come up for a vote. In uh-huh. fact, there is a movement within the Republican Party, even though it was the Republican le- legislature that passed the law that created in, uh, no no uh, uh, excuse mail voting, um, there because of Donald Trump beating them up for two years now, uh, there's a movement to try and get rid of mail voting, which is why it's so important that Pennsylvania has a Democratic governor to veto that legislation. Yeah, really. Well, with that, uh, Mike, I'm going to throw it back to David. David? All right. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on. And Tim had mentioned sports, and I know you're a big Steelers fan, and they're going to play on Sunday night here in a bit. So we'll let you get to that, and we'll continue to follow Pennsylvania and um, probably have you on at some point in the future to tell us what did happen once we finally know. That sounds great. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, sir. Thanks again. All right, that was uh, Mike Mitkus, a political consultant from western Pennsylvania, but has really worked all over. If you don't know Mike's work, you're missing him. He won several races here in Georgia, including the biggest race on the ticket in 2006. Um, In just a minute, Dr. Michael Bitzer is going to call in, but we may have a little bit of time in between, and we have had our early voting start in Georgia, and the numbers have been astounding. Early voting has been pretty anemic at a lot of places in the country, but everybody says except Georgia. Um, Catherine, I know the three of us have been talking all week. What are some of your thoughts on the numbers so far? Well, um, Catherine may be muted or stepped away. Um, Tim, you've seen them too. What do you think on some of the numbers you've seen on early voting in Georgia? Yeah, one thing that's been uh, very interesting about this is, and and I wasn't really expecting it, but we seem to have consistently run about a 35% of the vote, early vote has been uh, African-American. Black vote is coming out very, very heavily in the metro area. That is very, very good news for Democrats because, as you know, David, if uh, we're going to do well in the election, we've got to run it up in the early vote because uh, election day seems to be a day that that heavily favors the Republicans. So, so far, I've I've been very happy with it. My county has voted heavily. Of course, it's a Republican county, but still, people are getting out to vote. And I'm the kind of person I want everybody to vote and let the chips fall where they may. Right. If everybody yeah. participates and it's you know not politically exactly where I want it to be, at least everybody participates. Although I do subscribe to the theory that if everybody votes, things are probably going to be more progressive. Um, and I'll tell you, I was you know sending y'all some numbers because I love the fact you do it by congressional district, you do it by county, you do it by state house and state senate district. But counties are one I know a lot about, not every county since 159, but some of the ones that really look at it. And I sent y'all Clayton. Clayton is a county that really was undervoting horribly 
until around 2018. I think Stacey Abrams activated in 2018, and it stayed activated in 2020. And this time, the early vote is a well ahead of the pace of 2018. And if you can continue to pull numbers out of Clayton County, a heavily Democratic county, I think arguably the most Democratic county in the state, um, a county that's about 80% African-American, if you do that, that's going to help you big time. Now, not everything's rosy. Where the University of Georgia is, Clark, only about 25% of the votes in there. Um, and so that, that's kind of something that somebody needs to work on. And, of course, you can you know, flip this coin, and you can look at other places in which the Republicans, you know, they can go, hey, we need to get more voters out of these counties. I think Cherokee may be one of those that they're going to want to push, even though I'm sure – you know, they know that their election day vote's going to be better. I think actually Brian Kemp's campaign understands that early votes like money in the bank. You know, it's there. I'd, I personally have the theory of cannibalizing your elect, you know, election day vote because if I've got the vote counted, I, I can't get it twice. Um, and if the people just aren't there to vote later, what can I do? Catherine, did, did you back on with us? Yes, sorry about that. I had my mute on. Yeah, t- tell us your um, thoughts on what you've seen on early day vote. Well, I think it's remarkable to see, you know, all my friends are reporting on their uh, social media that they were in line and everybody was in a good mood. and and uh, But there were a lot of people, and uh, now most of that is Metro Atlanta, so that's good for us, of course. But I think it's I think it's really great that people are taking advantage of the early voting. Uh, I, I always feel like you, know, you never know what's going to happen in the last minutes before, you know, you get sick, you, your children get sick, something happens, your car breaks down. So planning ahead and voting early is always a good idea. And I'm so glad to see people taking advantage of that. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. And I'm also glad to see that the campaigns are uh, beginning, uh, not completely, beginning to shift their um, strategy to encouraging early voting and uh, getting things out early and not waiting until the very end to get all their ads up and their materials out. So that's all good. And I think it's good. Like you said, I don't, I'm not quite as strongly about you as everyone voting, but, I do agree that it's good for everyone to vote. We, we live in a democracy, and if you're a citizen, you're entitled to an opinion. I may not agree with your opinion, but you're a citizen. You, you can have an opinion. Um, but talking right. about early voting, the first state to have early voting that I saw uh, starting to tabulate numbers was North Carolina. And our next guest is uh, lives in the Tar Heel State and, and teaches in the Tar Heel State. Welcome to the Kudzu Vine Dr. Michael Bitzer. It's good to be with you as always. <clears throat> yes, sir. Um, well, I tell you what, I took the first questions last time, so I'm going to pass this thing um, over to Catherine and then Kim, and I'll come back at the end. So, Catherine, jump right back on sure. with your questions for Dr. Bitzer. Hey, thanks for being with us tonight. We got a little uh, road show going on here with three can- three people, so. We appreciate your uh, flexibility. <laughs> Happy to um, do I wanted so. to ask you. 
I wanted to ask you about the North Carolina. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, the North Carolina Senate race, uh, which mm-hmm. seems to be tightening up a little bit as we get closer to Election Day. And what do you think the reasons are for that? Well, it's been tight for some time. I mean, I think, you know, the way that most political scientists, most of us who study uh, midterm elections would always point to is first and foremost, this is typically a referendum on the president and the president's party, particularly if that party is in control of Congress. And what we're seeing is basic fundamentals that kind of line up with that dynamic. But there is some obvious uh, differences going on. I think what is happening is that with that fundamental dynamic, you would see Republicans having an advantage. And I think that that is still the case here in North Carolina with the U.S. Senate race. Uh, Ted Budd and Sherry Beasley are basically in the margin of error in terms of the variety of polls that we have seen. In the past couple of polls, Ted Budd has slightly expanded his lead. Uh, East Carolina University's uh, survey center had him at 50%. But I think it's all within the margin of error. And I think that that dynamic is going to play through Uh, until November 8th, when I kind of describe North Carolina as the margin of victory for a statewide race will be in the margin of error of most of the polls. So I think the advantage that the Democrats have is that they have certainly been able to energize their base, primarily through the Dobbs decision, how long that will last, if that can last for another two weeks or so. Uh, will be an important indicator. How do the uh, very few uh, couple of percentage points of undecideds and persuadable voters, how are they going to break? They typically tend to break to one party over the other as we get closer to general election day. And I think certainly the Republicans have the advantage when it comes to registered voter turnout. Uh, Since 2010, they have had the highest in each election cycle of the three major categories here in North Carolina. Registered Democrats uh, typically tend to meet the statewide turnout rate, but the largest group now of registered voters are unaffiliated voters, and they have the lowest voter turnout rate in our elections. So it's kind of playing out as a classic base-oriented referendum-style midterm. But, you know, we're we're already voting. We've been voting since uh, September 5th in the state with absentee by mail ballots. Uh, We're one of the first ones in the country to send out their absentee by mail. We've got about a little over 50,000 absentee by mail ballots already in the book, banked. And we've got another 300,000, and from what I understand today, for the counties that had Sunday voting, uh, it was quite heavy. So we may start to see a substantial number of ballots already banked well before this general election day. I noticed that um, 
President Obama has been is touring the country, hitting a variety of states to you know push to uh, for GOTV and to support candidates. I think he's coming to North Carolina. Do you think that how how does that play in North Carolina? Yeah, I think certainly the the Democrat that was last able to to win statewide uh, at the presidential level in 08 can certainly come in and energize a Democratic base. Uh, We certainly also have a historic candidacy uh, in Sherry Beasley, the former Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, an African-American woman. This is the first for the state to have that kind of candidate runs statewide for the U.S. Senate here in North Carolina. So I think certainly former President Obama's presence will be key to helping again kind of energizing and mobilizing that base to get out to vote, and not just on Tuesday, November 8th, but probably before uh, the early voting period ends, which is on November 5th. Uh, My expectation, based on past elections is that we could see anywhere from 60 to maybe 75 percent of all the ballots cast this year in North Carolina come before general election day. North Carolinians love to early vote. And in 2020, we only had 16 percent of all the ballots cast on election day. So this kind of dynamic, you know, when when campaigns are thinking about strategy, they're no longer thinking about a target date of, you know, November 8th or that Tuesday following the first Monday in November. They've got to think essentially two months in advance. And how are they going to strategize? How are they going to try to influence this early voting either by mail or in person And it really has become a kind of election season, not just election day. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that because that's been um, uh, something that's concerned me for a long time, that ever since we started having early voting, I felt like some some campaigns were not responding early enough and strategizing early enough to get those um, early voters. So I'm glad to hear that that's um happening in north carolina that's a good that's good news and hopefully it will spread across to other states we we, we're we're getting better at it here in georgia but we we have lagged behind i think um sure sure i had one more question oh uh just one more question so it sounds to me like your um democratic party must be doing something right are they pretty uh, well organized and funded, or is this mostly um, IE and other organizations uh, taking the lead on the on GOTV and all that kind of stuff, and or, or the, yeah. directly the, the campaigns? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think you know, with the public availability of <clears throat> voter registration data files and past voter history information. North Carolina has a gold mine of relevant data for all campaigns to really kind of focus on and strategize. And what I think is slightly different from North Carolina, from Georgia, is that we have not had the Stacey Abrams equivalent 
here in North Carolina to really focus on what I call long-term investment in not just voter mobilization but voter outreach, uh, the kind of work that her organization did to really set up the 2020 campaign. It seems like outside of North Carolina, particularly democratically aligned groups, just really haven't seen the possibility in North Carolina. I'm not sure they necessarily know what to do with this state, to be quite honest. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it it, it always seems to be a fool's errand. The last uh, Democrat to be elected to the U.S. Senate was Kay Hagan. That was back in 08. She actually performed better than Barack Obama by winning this state. Uh, But subsequently, Republicans pretty much figured out the strategy of get our voters out to vote. They are loyal. They will consistently show up. And I don't I have not seen there. There are pockets of activity and there's one in particular uh, this year that have really been focused on the ground game. But, you know, when all said and done, it is about who shows up to vote. And consistently, I go back, the highest voter turnout rate, that's among registered Republicans. They're third in the state, but they lead consistently in getting their voters out to vote. And I think the big key is certainly registered Democrats, because if you're in this environment and you are a registered partisan, it is most likely that you are a true believer for that particular party. The great mystery is the unaffiliated voter. And I think that's the dynamic a lot of us are watching uh, going forward to see how that group particularly plays. It's being driven a lot by voters under the age of 40. They tend to be, if national numbers hold out, they tend to be more democratically identifying than Republican. But they have the lowest voter turnout, again, So, you know, this isn't necessarily rocket science or even political science. It is just basic fundamentals of running a campaign, getting your voters to the polls. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I'm going to pass it to Tim for some further questions. Thanks so much. Sure. Uh, David, let me go ahead and pass it over to you, please. I can do that. Now, you're not going to have questions, so you want me to ask all North Carolina, right? Go ahead. I'm done. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Um, well, uh, Dr. Bitzer, um, the um, congressional questions – I'm sorry, mm-hmm. congressional races. We know that you have several that are kind of in play, um, and you had redistricting as well. Tell us about some of the, the ones to watch. Yeah, I think the most important race at the U.S. House level in this state is the 13th Congressional District. And that's a district that starts in South Raleigh, which is the state capital. It kind of consumes most of the southern half of that county, Wake County. It then jumps into a neighboring suburban county, Johnston County, and then ends up in in two very small more rural than suburban counties. But that district, if you take the election results from the 2020 elections for president, for U.S. Senate, and for the governor, 
it's basically a toss-up district. It's got a slight 52-48 Democratic edge, but with this kind of environment that we're seeing play out, I say it's pretty much a 50-50, if not a very slight Republican lean right at this point. But it's easily within the Democrats' reach to kind of capture that district. I think that's the one nationally a lot of people are focused on. That could be an early canary in the coal mine for both parties to kind of see how they're doing early on election evening. The rest of the district seem to be pretty much for one party over the other. We've got 14, so 13 others are pretty much evenly divided. If the 13th goes Republican and it's a very good Republican night overall, then I think the attention shifts to the first congressional district, and that's in the northeastern part of the state. That should be a Democratic district, but if Republicans are having a good night, that could be another competitive district uh, within the state. Yes, northeastern. Um, so that district's kind of um, maybe Greenville, and what, what major cities are in there? Yeah, it, it, it's a very rural uh, district, you know, going up to the Virginia state line and over to the coast. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of rural counties, very small towns. It's almost evenly divided in terms of population between white non-Hispanics and African-American non-Hispanic voters. So it's, it's traditionally been one of the majority-minority districts uh, in the state, uh, typically tends to lean Democratic because it will elect a black Democrat. But with the redistricting that happened by the North Carolina courts and endorsed by the state Supreme Court, uh, it has become much more potentially competitive. But the historic dynamics with that racial population, I think, still tend to lean uh, Democratic in its uh, temperament, shall we say. Uh, but, you know, in this environment, potentially anything could happen. Yes, and so that's kind of one of those traditional districts we've seen in the South, but in other parts of the country don't exist as much where we think of Democrats being so strong in cities and lagging now in rural areas. Exactly, and that has been the trend for some time here in North Carolina. You know, The way that I kind of look at the the regionalism of the state, I actually break it down into four discrete categories. You've got those core urban central cities, the Raleigh's, the Charlotte's, the Winston-Salem's, uh, the Greensboro's, the Asheville's. They are the most Democratic. I mean, if, if you just took those regions for the presidential race in 2020, Joe Biden would have won the state 70-30. I mean, it just would have been a complete blowout. Uh, but you get into those surrounding suburban counties and into the rural counties, and that's where you see Republicans exercise their base, their strength. It's actually those surrounding suburban counties to those <clears throat> urban counties that are the most Republican <clears throat> areas in the state. The true competitive areas are the areas outside of the central city limits, but inside those urban counties, those classic 
suburban counties. And that tends to be typically either 50-50, as it was in 2016, or 54-46 uh, in 2020 going to Trump. But that is the most competitive region in North Carolina nowadays. Yes. Well, Dr. Bitzer, we thank you so much for coming on, and we're going to continue to watch North Carolina, and we're going to have to have you on before that governor's race because Mark Robinson is quite an infamous character, and I think he's going to play large uh, in the next cycle, so we're going to have to get all of your input on that. Sure. Happy to do so. Good to talk to everybody. Good to talk to you. All right. Um, that was Dr. Michael Bitzer of Catawba College in North Carolina. He is always excellent, and, and my favorite is the fact that he um, wrote the political chapter of the Simpsons book. Um, now when I watch the Simpsons, I think of him. Now we're going to move up north to another state that has a competitive governor and a competitive Senate race with Dr. Anthony Chagoski. Welcome, Dr. Chagoski. Hi, nice to talk to you guys tonight. Oh, good to have you on on this triple header. This is like the WrestleMania of Cousin Vines <laughs> with three blockbuster guests. Um, I'm going to start you off with uh, Tim and then Catherine and then come back to me. And since we can actually take into overtime, because there's something I wanted to ask you about, not actually about these races, but I'm going to let Tim and Catherine talk to you about the two big races there in Wisconsin. Tim? Good evening, sir. Thank you for being on with us on this wild evening. Um, you you have an incumbent Democratic governor in Tony Evers. Right now, and I just checked a moment ago, according to um, compilation polling on 538.com, it stands that Governor Evers has a lead of exactly four-tenths of 1%. Now, with barely two weeks to go, why is this race tied, or is it just because it's Wisconsin? You know, I often go with that explanation. It's just <laughs> Wisconsin. You know, it's you know, you, we could have we could have a vote on just about anything, and it would be fifty-one forty-nine. And I think that's where this killer race is is heading. Yeah, Tony Evers has been a you know a low-key governor. He has been someone who yeah, he's not the flashiest character out there. He's not a great communicator. That is both that has been both a blessing and a curse for him. It means that he doesn't really have sort of the charm and the larger-than-life persona that a lot of governors have, and you know, that gives them that public profile that adds to their appeal. He, he doesn't have that at all. But it does make him a bit of a difficult target for Republicans. Republicans have long had challenges trying to find a coherent line of attack against Tony Evers. So his low-key persona has both helped and hurt him, and ultimately, I think that adds up to a very close race. He's running up against a construction company executive named Tim Michaels, who ran against Russ Feingold for the Senate in 2004. He lost that race and is now trying to make a political comeback. And, you know, Tim Michaels has been in an awkward position because he self-funded his campaign to win the primary election. He put millions of dollars of his own money into the race, and 
he also got a big lift by getting the endorsement from Donald Trump, and, and all of that really helped him. He has been vastly outspent by Tony Evers in the race in the general election because now Tim Michaels is kind of asking people for money. Now he's not sure if he wants to self-fund. Uh, so Tony Evers is dominating the airwaves and trying to brand Tim Michaels as a radical, focusing on abortion, focusing on some sexual assault, sexual harassment lawsuits from Tim Michaels' construction company. So this is going to be a very close race. I think we might even be heading for a recount potentially. But regardless of which way it goes, it's going to be, you know, no more than a two or three point edge. So I, I, I am genuinely, genuinely unsure of how the governor's race is going to go. Certainly in the Senate race, things are leaning in Ron Johnson's direction right now just a bit. But in the governor's race, there's really no indication at this point of, just which way this thing is going to go. Mm -hmm. Now, I saw their debate on C-SPAN nine days ago, and, and it was evident from the get-go <laughs> that the two candidates were, shall we say, very far apart on the issues. And they really went at it issue of abortion and spent a lot of time on it. And that made me wonder, is that a cutting issue in Wisconsin in the governor's race? And where did the voters stand on the issue there? I, I think it does have the potential to move voters in the race for governor because after Roe versus Wade was struck down, we reverted to a law passed in 1849 in Wisconsin, shortly after Wisconsin became a state and, of course, pre-Civil War. So a law that was from, like, uh, you know, at this point, nearly 200 years ago. And, and the abortion law outlaws abortion in basically any circumstance aside from saving the life of the mother. So we essentially have a full ban on abortion in Wisconsin. And I think just how vastly and how quickly things changed here in Wisconsin has made it a key issue. And Tim Michaels has been – you know, he, he, has, he has found that this has been a difficult issue for him to handle because during the primary election campaign, he went on the record in favor of the 1849 law, the almost complete ban on abortion in Wisconsin. And now he's kind of distancing himself. Yeah, he's kind of distancing himself from that. But it comes across as, you know, someone who is trying to maybe strategically shift his position and so, uh, you know, I, I think he's in an awkward position right now because he used his stance in favor of the law to try to gain favor with Republican primary voters. But now he's facing a much different audience. It's the classic example of a candidate who has to take one set of positions to get through the primary election, but then finds that those positions are not working to his advantage in the general election. So Tony Evers has been relentlessly focusing on abortion. I'll put it this way. If, we, if Tony Evers wins this election for governor, we are probably going to look back at the election and say that abortion was the decisive issue. Um, so if Evers wins, that would be sort of my first instinct in trying to explain it. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And with that, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hello. Good evening. Thank you for being with us on our little round robin. <laughs> <laughs> you got um, it. 
<laughs> I wanted to ask you about the Senate race in Wisconsin, um, which to me is very um, interesting in in the distinctions between the two candidates. You've got like an older white, uh, long elected person, and then a younger uh, African American leader. And I'm just wondering how that's playing out, and uh, what the uh, is the abortion issue also important in that race, or less so because of the reversion back to the states for abortion laws? You know, Catherine, I think it's been the case that abortion has figured much more prominently in the race for governor, because I think people understand that this has become a state issue, and that the right. situation in Wisconsin is now vastly different than it used to be because of the striking down of Roe versus Wade and the reversion to that 1849 law in Wisconsin. So it has been much more of an issue in the race for governor. One more reason why it's been much more of an issue in the race for governor is that Tony Evers in the race for governor, the Democrat, has way outspent the Republican challenger and has had way more television commercials on the air It has been just the opposite in the race for Senate, where Ron Johnson and Ron Johnson's allies have outspent the Democrat Mandela Barnes, and Ron Johnson and Ron Johnson's allies have been much more present on the airwaves than Mandela Barnes and the the Democrats. So for those reasons, abortion has played much more of a role in the race for governor, and that is very much work to the disadvantage of Mandela Barnes as he tries to unseat Ron Johnson, because Ron Johnson has relentlessly focused on crime, policing, and public safety. It has been effective. It has been effective in dragging down Mandela Barnes's favorability numbers. Mandela Barnes is now trying to pivot at the last minute, trying to turn the tables and make abortion more of an issue. But right now, political observers are honestly wondering if it's too late. If, if Ron Johnson has the two, three, four-point advantage kind of locked in at this stage. So uh, I, I think Ron Johnson has the slightest of edges right now, and, and that's because the Democrats just have not been able to push the abortion issue in the Senate race nearly to the extent that they have in the race for governor here in Wisconsin. Well, is there no um, sort of – response to like I always think it's strange to uh focus on crime for federal offices now obviously there's some there's some you know federal work that can be done on crime but generally that's a local or state and municipal problem um so it's I I just always think there should be a response to that like you've had the legislature all this time why why haven't you done anything but, you know, that's that's me. Um, it's been it's about- been difficult to message for the Democrats. There's there's no doubt about that. And and, you know, and it, it had long been. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it had long been recognized that crime and policing and public safety were major vulnerabilities for Mandela Barnes that this was where the Ron Johnson team was going to go during this campaign. I, I think there haven't been many surprises there. I mean, the, the the playbooks are pretty much being followed exactly like we thought they would. I mean, Tony Evers, the governor, going right after Tim Michaels' challenger on abortion, and then Ron Johnson trying to make this thing all about 
crime and public safety. And and I, I should note he has been he has been greatly aided by outside spending in this race. The Republicans have just absolutely poured money into this race. The super PACs have poured in money by the millions and just made crime the signature issue of this Senate race. Um, now, I think I read that uh, President Obama is coming to Wisconsin to help Mandela Barnes. How, how do you think that is that is that true? Is that, did I read that correctly? That is correct. He's coming to Milwaukee. And when we look at the politics of Wisconsin, like many states, Wisconsin has a fierce urban versus rural divide where there are very blue urban areas and very red urban areas. And that's a divide that's been increasing throughout the past decade plus. And so Barack Obama is going to come into the biggest wild card in the state, and that is the city of Milwaukee. The city of Milwaukee is a massive wild card because from election to election, we just don't know what kind of turnout we're going to get out of Milwaukee. You know, the other major Democratic area in the state is is the, the city of Madison, and that is a city that the Democrats have just been able to bank on big time because it consistently delivers some of the highest turnout numbers in the state. The students are there at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's a growing area, a very liberal area, and it has high turnout. The city of Milwaukee is another story, and Barack Obama <laughs> is going there to try to generate turnout because the Democrats just cannot solve that issue of turnout in Milwaukee. They're going to try to solve it this year with Barack Obama. He, if anyone can do it, I think he might be able to do it. But, uh, you, you know, he's going to the right place, put it that way. Um, you know, they need him in Milwaukee because if the Democrats, you know, again, kind of, you know, what, what story would – I think what I wonder about is, you know, what story would we tell ourselves if the Democrats win? And, and you know, one story that we might tell ourselves is that Milwaukee came through for the Democrats in terms of turnout. Um, if the Democrats lose, we might say Milwaukee did not come through in terms of turnout. So, um, so I think that's exactly what Barack Obama is up to. It makes total sense strategically. Well, I hope it's, I hope it's helpful. And with that, I'm going to pass it back to David for to close out. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Yeah. Yes, if someone in the future applies to be um, – chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, I would direct you to Anthony's comments just now and say that you have a plan to solve the turnout issues in Milwaukee. You'll get the job if they believe your plan will do it. Well, um, yep. Anthony, I did want to follow up on that Senate race in something specific. There was a debate between Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes uh, about a week ago. And the final question of the debate was, you know, the, the, the moderator said, you know, this, y'all have been so contentious and politics is so contentious. We would like each of you to say something nice about each other. And Mandela Barnes goes first, and he said, well, Ron Johnson, you're a fine family man that takes care of your family. Said something very gracious. I think he added a few more things to it. And then Ron Johnson, they asked him, and he said, yeah, your parents were good people, and that's what's so vexing about how you've turned out. And just I said something from there. The audience just groaned at how he could not be magnanimous and say something positive about Mandela Barnes. Um, what has the reaction been to that moment of the debate? 
Yeah, that was really the only clip from these debates that went viral. Um, you know, when, when we think about the debates that have been held, there were two debates in the race for Senate, and that was the only clip that kind of broke through, quote-unquote, to a broader audience, to an audience online that was kind of shared online. And so I think it was a damaging moment for Ron Johnson because, you know, that, that's a question that you have to know is coming as a candidate. It's a question that you have to be prepared for. And obviously the response was not favorable. And I think it just speaks to this broader notion of Ron Johnson and who Ron Johnson is as a candidate. There's been a lot of hype throughout this campaign that, look, Ron Johnson, he's going to try to reinvent himself. He's going to try to rebrand himself. You know, he's this kind of like right-wing bomb thrower who goes on Sean Hannity and, and talks about Dr. Fauci and talks about Joe Biden, talks about Hunter Biden. And, you know, he's going to try to rebrand himself during this campaign. And, you know, at, at this point, look, Ron Johnson is who he is. And that was very characteristic of Ron Johnson to have that type of response to that question. And, um, you know, Ron Johnson is both beloved by his base and despised by the Democratic Party base because of exactly that type of behavior. And so I, I think when it comes to Ron Johnson, um, you know, I, I would – I would view, I, w I would see kind of these articles from Politico or NBC or wherever saying, you know, we're going to see a new Ron Johnson during this campaign. And I would just I kind of sigh to myself and say that, look, we know who Ron Johnson is. The people of Wisconsin know who Ron Johnson is. And opinions of Ron Johnson are pretty well set at this point. And people love him. People hate him. People have made up their minds about him. And, and at this point, um, you know, I think the opinions about Ron Johnson are pretty darn baked in. And it's just a matter of what people think about Mandela Barnes. But, um, yeah, you know, the great reinvention of Ron Johnson never quite happened. He, he is who he is. He's a bomb thrower. He is, uh, he is uh, someone who is going to um, say it like it is and is going to speak without much of a filter, and people are going to respond very favorably to that. If they're a Republican supporter, they're going to respond unfavorably to that. If they're a Democratic supporter. And um, so he just – you know, the the Ron Johnson persona is pretty much what it is at this point. Reminds me of the story of the scorpion and the frog, Ron Johnson being the scorpion in the story. I'll let somebody Google that on the Internet to find out more. Um, so I, cause I got one more question I got to ask you about. Sure. I think after I booked you to come on the show to talk about Wisconsin politics, I learned this fact, that at the University of Wisconsin – at La Crosse, that the college Republicans and the college Democrats have the same advisor. And since you work there, you've got to tell us, is this person like that Gandhi figure that can just bring everybody together, or is he like the Undertaker, American badass, and everybody's just so afraid to cross this guy? <laughs> yep, that would be me. Um, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun to work with, to work with both groups. I mean, this is one of the most, in a politically divided state, this is one of the most politically divided areas of that state. Um, so it's, it's really fun to, to get to work with the conservative and the liberal students alike. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how things shake out in the, uh, in the race. I honestly, how I see things kind of shaking out. I think both groups are going to have something to celebrate. My prediction, if the election were held today, Tony Evers, the Democratic governor, would get reelected. Ron Johnson, the Republican senator, would get reelected. 
I think, you know, don't don't hold me to that. Uh, I think just if the election were held today, I think that's where we'd be heading. So basically, you're saying everybody's so ticked off that we're just going to reelect incumbents. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, sounds which a lot like Wisconsin to me. In Georgia, which, <laughs> I mean, it's so crazy that, that everybody's so mad that we're just going to reelect the same people. <laughs> yep. So that's yep. Just, yeah. After spending well, Anthony, we billions think, of dollars. Go ahead, Catherine. After spending billions of dollars, uh, we'll elect the same people. Yes, that's uh, and that's a whole other topic on, on TV yeah. ad spending. Well, Anthony, we thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, who knows what Wisconsin politics will hold after this election? I guess y'all calm down a little bit because um, you won't have a governor's race coming up, but I'm sure we'll get you on the show soon, and thank you for taking part and our little experiment tonight. Oh, thank you. Look forward to having look forward to coming back on the show. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yes. All right, Dr. Anthony Tregoski of was University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. Guys, if I would have said we'll end this show about eight o'clock, you'd have never believed me, right? That's right. The the trains <laughs> almost are. ran on time. Throughout this hour, we thank all those guests. I, mean, we, I knew we had to talk about some of these races again, and that just seemed like a, a chance to try something. And I think they all did an admirable job, um, gave us a ton of information. I mean, people are going to listen to this because we run and really felt like they were informed. Next week, we have another great guest who we've had on multiple times that's really going to give us a picture of the landscape um, just all across the country, and actually could talk to us about the British elections uh, or the British prime minister situation, which is quite interesting. Um, Evan Scrimshaw is going to be our guest on the show. So till then, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, night y'all. Guys. Night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. What a strong and.